a young marrieds uh, meeting at the church here. For those of you who are part of the Young Marrieds group or are interested or know people who would be interested and need to go to that, we're meeting in the chapel 6.30 this Thursday. I'm speaking. Uh, it's under the leadership of Brad and uh, Brad Giroux, his wife Toby as well, orchestrate this time. Um, and I'm speaking on the church and how the family should be integrated in the local church. So uh, tell people to come to that. They also meet uh, on the other Thursdays um, throughout the month at the Kaler's house. So um, Mark and Tanya Kaler's house, uh, they is where they host the young marrieds. But this Thursday, it's in the chapel, so be a part of that. Uh, a couple other things that are going on, you'll note in your bulletin, uh, there is the Alaska Men's Ministry Conference. It's the Men's Summit that's meeting at, on February 20th at Change Point. I'm a, uh, just a, a breakout session speaker, but Jeff Schulte is the main speaker. They have other speakers for general sessions. And uh, be sure to look at the trifold um, that's out in the lobby for information about that. It's February 20th. There's a breakfast at 7 a.m., and then all day to talk about integrity, about living the Christian life, uh, you know, fighting the good fight of faith. There's stuff on personal purity there as well. Um, details are also in the bulletin. Today at 3 o'clock here in our worship center, we're going to be celebrating the life and homegoing of Karen Byers. Um, there's going to be a memorial service at 3 today here, and it'll be a great time to come and uh, mourn her death and grief, uh, the loss of her, because she was such a wonderful, godly Christian example and such a lover of the elementary children at Grace Christian School. And so we just want to honor her life and also rejoice in her homegoing as she is with the Lord, now free from cancer. Um, she, uh, her husband, is still here, John, and we can pray for him and pray for the Byers family in general and support them in a great way today, um, 3 o'clock here in the worship center. All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm picking up on a theme that I began last week called Peace in the Church, and specifically that coming from verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13 talk about healthy synergy within the body of Christ. Paul lays out a wonderful plan for this church that applies to our church, which is for the flock or the members or the congregation to be moving towards the leadership and the leadership to be responding and moving towards the congregation in love, in unity, and beautiful synergy, and that this is God's design. If you'll look at the last phrase in verse 13, it's a command, be at peace among yourselves. The word yourselves there is reflexive, and it's the idea of peace being given back and forth amongst the leadership and the flock, working together and loving each other. Now, what I want to do this morning, though, is I want to take our eyes off of man and put them on Jesus Christ. Now, verses 12 and 13 talk about respecting those who labor among you, who are over you, who admonish you, to esteem them highly in love because of their work. And then how we're supposed to work in that model and be at peace with, with each other. And that is beautifully written and inspired instruction by the Holy Spirit. But there was one idea I wanted to 
bring in last week that this week I'm going to bring to you. And that is the idea that not only are we to have peace among ourselves, but we are also to be looking to the, our ultimate leader, who is the Prince of Peace. In other words, God designed leaders and he designed congregations to work in this way. And we respect that design. But let's take a Sunday and look at the designer. Let's look at our ultimate leader. Because when you put this in the context of Jesus and the gospel and his headship, this is what really makes obeying this kind of truth fly. That's what makes it work. And I know of no better place in scripture than Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to talk about Jesus' leadership. He is the ultimate leader. So let's turn over there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Follow as I read. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight... And sin, which clings so, cl- so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What we have here displayed is two forms of leadership that fuel the Christian life, two forms of leadership. The first form of leadership here in verse 1 is our heritage in the faith. Now, when I say leadership is our heritage, what I mean by that is I'm, I'm talking about the weight of example that we have found in chapter 11 of all of the heroes of the faith, both men and women who have gone before us who have lived it out, and how their example, it does bring leadership in our lives. It it brings accountability and it motivates us to live our Christian lives. Now, I firmly believe from 1 Timothy 2 that leadership in the church is for men. It's male. But I also see that I can expand this idea that you have women leading women in the church. You You have godly men and godly women who are examples who bring this kind of accountability for us. And we see this in chapter 11. Verse 38 of chapter 11 says this about these men and women. They were those of whom the world was not worthy. Godly people. Godly people. Those of whom the world was not worthy. Look at verse 35. Women received their dead by resurrection. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. 37. They were stoned and sawn in two. You know, as a Christian, you and I have an amazing heritage. We have an amazing heritage. I mean, think about it. Abel. From Cain and Abel, murdered by his brother, he's dead, but his, his life and his blood still speaks to us, according to the scripture. Verse 4, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You've got Abraham, who is the father of faith. You have Sarah, who believed the Lord. Joseph, who suffered and persevered. Moses, 
who gave us the law of God and led the children of Israel through the wilderness. By faith, you have Rahab. So you have men and women who are godly people who give us a great example. It's what Leon Morris called the gallery of witnesses. As if beautiful masterpieces in a museum that look upon us and cause us to go, man, I can live the Christian life too. I can follow examples like these. It's a great Christian heritage. It's also the idea of a a stadium theme where you've got spectators who've run the race before us, who've competed, and they're looking down on us with accountability. Dalich from the old um, Hebrew scholarship said, Our life is a context. It's theater, the universe. The seats of the spectators are ranged through heaven. They've won the victory, and now we are competing for the same prize. Hebrews 13.7 broadens this idea. Look at Hebrews 13.7. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So not only do you have Hebrews 11, past people who lived it out, but... This author, this writer is saying, remember the leaders that are contemporaneously in your life who have led you, who've taught you the word of God, who've shown you how to live it out. Remember those people. I mean, women, you should be remembering those mentors in your life. And men, you should be remembering those godly men who've discipled you, who've said the hard thing, who've lived it out in front of you. Why? So you can imitate their Faith. This is the weight of accountability that we have in leaders around us. And Hebrews 12, verse 1, tells us how we're supposed to respond as we remember this cloud of witnesses. The idea of a cloud of witnesses, by the way, it's like tornadic clouds. It's a weight of witnesses. It's the idea of being blown away by some serious weather patterns. It's the, uh, it's the idea of, of uh, being Dorothy going toto, toto, right? I mean, you're just, you're going, wow. You know, there's an ominous weight. And this ominous weight, it causes us to run the Christian life, run the race of the Christian life in three ways. First of all, we unload what's necessary. We unload every weight. Verse one, let us also lay aside every weight. Now, weight here is uh, not a sin per se. It's more of a preference, more of a preference. We're laying aside things that aren't necessarily sinful but could distract us from running the race well in the Christian life. It's the idea of stripping away any loose clothing that would encumber or impede you for running quickly. Or if you're in a wrestling match, you don't want garments that are loose that could be grabbed. And you're, you're, the Greek here is talking about throwing these things off. What could this be? Practically. Practically, I think it's an idol of the heart. Just because you have an idol doesn't mean you're worshiping it, but there's a lot of things in our lives that crop up in our hearts and they can become points of idolatry. You say, I don't have an idol. I don't have an idol. I don't have a family idol in my house. I, I've, not, I've not made that you know, clay formation in my house. Ha- well, it could be that you have an idol in your heart. John Calvin said that our hearts are factories of idols. They make the idols. It's anything that you're tempted to overly focus on for peace and for sanity and for help. It's it's anything, and here's the question, it's anything where you make something the gospel that's not your gospel. 
So what's the gospel to you that's not really the gospel? That's how you find out where the idols are in your life. What's your good news? Is your relationship with someone the good news for you? Is that your sanctuary? Is that your resting place? Is it your job? Is it your success? Is it, you know, the thing that you want so desperately, is that your gospel? And what the writer is saying is, look, strip that stuff away. You know, relationships and success and money and those things are necessary and they're gifts, but they don't, they should not supplant the gospel. So strip that away from your life. The idea is not to make those things the gospel in your life anymore. And if you strip them away, you might be surprised at how freed up your Christian life becomes. Where you go, you know what? Jesus really is it for me. He's sufficient for me. Number two, not only do you unload these sort of preferences or these encumbrances. Secondly, you unload or lay aside the sin which clings. Look at verse one. The sin which clings so closely. Now we're talking about. Real sins that you can document. It's like you're, you're sitting there, you're in the blocks and you want to run the race and you look down and you've got vines of sin around you that are clinging. You know, it's that that you're walking in the woods and the, the pricker bushes, right, they get you and if you go any farther, it's going to rip your flesh. You got to carefully remove that stuff, right? Take it off to unhinder you. And you say, well, I've got sin. I mean, I'm not going to be ultimately delivered from my sin until I get to heaven. So, no, but... The Bible calls you to, to, to confess your sins, to, to look at them and, and to work through your, your life and call a spade a spade and say, God, forgive me for these things. And to take the sin out of your life by God's grace through confession, confessing it to the Lord. And it's the sins that cling so closely to us. The author assumes that we have sins that need to be dealt with. And frankly, when you... Have a clear conscience. Isn't the Christian life so much easier to run? All of a sudden, you're, you're really going for it. And you think, why? Well, it's because you have a clear conscience. You're freed up. You're freed up to live your Christian life. Number three, not only are you unloading preferences, you're unloading encumbrances and weights and idols, and then you're cutting away your sin from your life, but thirdly, you're gaining an appropriate mindset. An appropriate mindset. And I think this is the key. This is kind of the connection back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is why I went here. You see your life as an endurance race. You let us, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, it's one thing just to look at the design of the church and say, you know, God set up a local church. It's a body that functions organically and institutionally. There's marrying, there's burying, there's baptism, there's the Lord's Supper, there's preaching, there's elders, there's pastors, there's deacons. You know, there's this design thing. But it's important that you not only understand the design of the church, but you lift your eyes up and say, I'm going to also focus on the designer of the church. Jesus, the head of the church. He is the one that makes all of the, our kind of fouled up methods and failed attempts palatable. Because you say, you know what? Jesus is the one who set this all before us. He created the track for us to run on. He brought these people into our lives. 
And if you focus on the designer, then you've got a gospel atmosphere as you follow leadership in a church. As you live out your Christian life, as you run your marathon that God designed specifically for you. He set your race up. That's what he's saying. The the race set before us. Hebrews 11 is a bunch of different marathon races. A bunch of marathoners. And they ran all their different races in different ways. We got to run ours. Under Jesus, our head. We gain the appropriate mindset. We see that we're in it for the long haul. James 1, 1 and 2. Consider it joy when you face various trials. And you're under trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Same marathon idea. And then verse 12 is the idea that once you have completed the test and you finish the test and you receive the prize at the end of the race, your prize is the crown of life. That's the right mindset for the Christian life. You see it as God's plan. God's plan is not an easy plan always. You don't see this in the English version, but it says run with endurance the race that's an agonizing race. The Greek word agon is there. It's the idea of an agonizing race, which could also bring in a metaphor of wrestling. It's marathon running and wrestling. It's agonizing. It's, it's fighting. It's grappling, which reminded me of my early days when I wrestled for a couple years. thought I'd share a story. I was thinking about, you know, a match I had, and I didn't win. Um, I was wrestling a guy who was better than me, and he was, he was winged. He actually had his, his arm bandaged up, and so I was kind of, you know, into this thing and thinking maybe I could win. But, you know, as I would grab that bandaged arm, I could hear one voice yelling at me from the crowd, his mother. <laughs> she did not want me to win, and she didn't like me very much. I, yeah, I think I did lose after all, so she probably was okay. But anyway, I heard her coming after me. She wanted me dead. She was pointing things out to the ref and the whole thing. But one thing I remembered after that match, as with all matches, is that when I would return to the bench, the whole bench would stand up and they would clap as I would return, as we would clap and enjoin the wrestler back into the fold. It's like you went out there by yourself, but you're really all connected with each other. And that's a picture of the church. We're running the race that's set before us by Jesus, but we're remembering the cloud of witnesses. All of our leadership, all of the mentors, all of the body of Christ that cheers us on. That's the right mindset in the church. Your leaders are leading for you, not for them. That's the heart of an elder. That's the heart of a pastor. They're in it for you. And we're all pointing each other to Jesus, the head. That's synergy. That's how the the rich heritage of the cloud of witnesses work. We're pointing each other to Jesus. And Jesus is at the finish line. Look look at verse 2. The first form of leadership is our heritage. The second form is Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking is present active participle. It's the idea of continually looking to Jesus. Say, but yeah, I want to get distracted about this or that, or I'm I'm concerned about this preference. Well, do it all in the context of looking towards Jesus. Looking towards Jesus. He's the only one that will get it right and perfectly right. He's the ultimate leader, Jesus. We run continually focusing on him. 
It reminded me of a, an Olympic runner that you've heard of and probably read about, Eric Liddell. Many of you have probably seen the movie The Chariots of Fire movie where he was nicknamed the Flying Scotsman. He was Scottish, born in 1902, but he was born in North China because he was uh, a child of missionary parents who were reaching North China. And then he ultimately went to Eltham College and was an outstanding sportsman, but most notably known for being the fastest runner in Scotland. He had an unorthodox running style as portrayed in the movie Chariots of Fire, where his head would throw back and his mouth would be wide open. And this actually is historically documented. And I think it pictures his faith as he would run. One person wrote that at an athletics championship in Glasgow, a visitor watching the 440-yard final in which Liddell was a long way back from the leaders at the start of the last lap of the 220-yard track remarked to a Glasgow native that Liddell would be hard put to win the race. So the Glaswegian merely replied, his head's no back yet. Liddell then threw his head back and with his mouth wide open caught and passed his opponent's To win the race. Liddell would say, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you feel his pleasure? In the church? With your situation? The question is, are we throwing our head back and looking at Jesus? We're going, man, Jesus, you are the head of this church. We're imperfect, but Jesus, you're the head. That's the place to start. That's the place where we're really receiving our leadership. In 1924, Liddell did compete in the Olympics, but he did not compete in his best event, which was the 100 meter. He, being a strict Sabbatarian, did not compete because that race was on a Sunday. And he did it out of his own personal conviction. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian or a vegetarian, but, but Eric Liddell had strong convictions. As the story goes, Tom McKercher, an athletic director of Edin- the Edinburgh University, slowly carried the schedule of the 1924 Olympics to his friend, Eric Liddell, his star athlete, while Eric was studying for class. Tom McKercher said, Eric, the first heat for the 100-meter race, heats for the 100-meter race are to be held on Sunday, July 6th, to be exact. Without a moment's hesitation, Eric looked up from his book and replied, then I'm not running. Tom, do you really know why I can't run? If I run in a race that honors me or other men, I am not remembering God's Sabbath. So this is conviction. And if I start ignoring one of God's commands, I may as well ignore all of them, but I can't do that because I love God too much. He saw Jesus in everything that he did. Liddell spent the intervening months leading up to the 
Olympics, training for the 400 meters, his success in the 400 meters was largely unexpected. But the day of the 400 meter race came and Liddell went to the starting blocks. And as he went there, an American masseur slipped a piece of paper into Liddell's hand with a quotation from 1 Samuel 2.30. Those who honor me, I will honor. So what happened? Liddell ran the race with the piece of paper in his hand. And he not only won the race, but he broke the existing world record with a time of 47.6 seconds. Ultimately, this led to him having a great platform in Glasgow with students in the Evangelical Union. He led people to Christ. And then he returned to North China to be a missionary and follow in his parents' footsteps and finish his race in that way. Looking to Jesus. That's our call, looking to him. Moses did this. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. You might turn back there. Remember, Moses had all of the riches of Egypt at his disposal, but he also had a conviction that he was a Hebrew and wanted to connect with his people again, and so he despised the riches. Look at verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin... He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Look at verse 27, though. What's the reward? By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do we get along in the church? How do we make peace with people? In the family, at the workplace, in the church. How do you do it? You got to see the invisible leader of leaders. You got to see Jesus in your heart leading. It's what Moses did, it's what the Christian does who is a peacemaker. He focuses on the Prince of Peace. How are we exactly supposed to follow Jesus? Are you supposed to just look at Jesus and think of him as a moral person? A good guy, a guy who lived it out in a morally perfect way. I think we need to see Jesus in a deeper way in the context of self-sacrifice. Jesus ran an endurance race that we could never have run. Jesus sweated great drops of blood at the Garden of Gethsemane, begging God that his marathon race would be passed from him, that he would not have to drink the Father's cup of wrath. But then ultimately yielded and said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he ran a race, having his beard ripped out, having the cat of nine tails strip away his flesh, being mocked, being slugged, And he ran a race with a beam on his back all the way up to Mount Golgotha. For you and for me. That's what it means when the writer says he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He founded our faith. He trailblazed the perfect race for us to run. He did it self-sacrificially. He's the founder. He's the archegos, the ultimate leader of self-sacrifice and perseverance. Now, how did he do this with joy in his heart? 
Look at verse 2 again. This is kind of an interesting sort of stop and pause place in the Bible, isn't it? He's the founder and perfecter of our, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How is the cross, how is crucifixion joy? From great drops of blood being sweated to joy. How do we do that? How do we grasp that? How do we run a race like that? Well, some people say that Jesus' joy was in the fact that he redeemed you and me. The joy was the fact that he was securing our heaven for us. Could be. Some would say that this means that Jesus traded the shame up for joy. He just said, well, I'm not going to see it as shame. I'm just going to see this as joy. I think that's too broad brush and too simplistic. I think Jesus instead was modeling for you and for me how to run our marathon race because Jesus saw the end of the race and the end of the race, the end of his race is the father waiting for him at the finish line. He understood that the race that was set before him was set there by the father. When Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, there was joy in that. And Jesus knew he was going to return back to be with the Father, the one that he loved the most. I pick up on this from John 13. The night of Passover, he's with his disciples. Judas Judas Iscariot is betraying him at Passover. And Jesus has a mindset that the race that was set before him was given him by the Father. And we find this in John 13, verse 1. The Apostle John actually brings us into the mindset of Jesus. You want to know the mind of Christ? Here it is. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Stop there. What did Jesus know? What was he thinking before he was going to the cross? As as he's on the eve of the cross that night before he's going to run this race? What is he thinking? He knows that his hour has come for him to to depart out of this world and go, the original language is proston theon, to be face to face again with his father. That's what's on his mind. Judas is betraying him. The cross is right before him. What's on his mind? I'm going to be with the father once again. The communion that I left, I'm going to receive with my father once again. My hour had not come. It did not come. It's finally, it's come. My hour has come, and I'm excited because I'm going to be with my Father in that way once again. John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John John here is saying that Jesus knew that God the Father was sovereign over all of this plan. Judas betraying him was not a surprise to Jesus. We know that. Jesus knew what was going on. But he knew that all of it was being orchestrated by his father and that he had come from God to earth and now was going back to God. I think that's the joy. I think that's the joy of Hebrews chapter 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. What's set before him? The father's perfect will. And he's going back to the father. That's leadership modeled for you and me. No matter how bad it gets in your life. 
or no matter how you perceive our local church, your church, this is the race that is set before us by Jesus, the head of the church. It's his design, it's his plan, and we need to first and foremost look to the designer, Jesus. That's leadership. His heart was filled with God as he endured the shame of the cross. His heart was filled with joy as he endured the shame because he was able to see beyond the shame to the will of God. He was our perfecter. What does that mean? He was the founder, the archegos, the the pioneer, but he was also the perfecter. This idea of being a perfecter means that he secured your redemption by running the race. Now, we will never redeem anyone by how we live, but our life can be redemptive. Our life can and should have meaning for other people in the body of Christ. It must. By God's grace, you're being used in this body to encourage. I mean, I could just build off of next week's message to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and to be patient with all men. That's God's Holy Spirit through you in your ministry to other people, and that is redemptive. But the only reason why we can be redemptive is because Jesus first redeemed you to be such. And he did. He was the perfecter. It says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne on high. His seated position means that the redemption was accomplished and applied. If I can borrow from John Murray's title of a book. Redemption accomplished and applied. Christ's righteousness given to your account. Philippians 1.6, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So your redemption is accomplished, but your sanctification is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the end. Hebrews 10.12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I alluded to this last week with our Lord's table, communion. But the ceremonial system meant that ceremonial sacrifices were being offered for sins towards Israel all the time. And priests were more like butchers. And temples were more like butcher shops. Filled with blood on the floor, all around. Why? Because sin is so despicably horrible. And the shame of sin needed to be covered symbolically by the slaughtering of animals. The shedding of blood, the killing, the sacrificing. To show that the people of God had a heart of repentance toward their God. But Jesus secured your redemption once for all, and my redemption, as the ultimate Lamb of God. He ran his race victoriously. He's a marathon winner, and he is our head, he is our example, and he is who we follow. Here's a few take-home points. How should we think about Jesus in terms of our local church, in terms of being our leader? First of all, Jesus is your prophet, priest, and king. I borrow that from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but it's just a way to think about Jesus categorically. What did Jesus do when he came here to earth? Well, he did a lot of things. Healed the sick and raised the dead, but he preached. He preached, 
Recently I've been looking at Matthew 5 through 7. The greatest sermon ever preached begins with the Beatitudes. How we're blessed if we're poor in spirit. How we're blessed if we're peacemakers. How we're blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness sake. If you really want to obey the gospel and live the Christian life in the most severe way, follow the Sermon on the Mount. When you're struck, turn your other cheek to be struck. When someone asks you for something, give them double. Someone says, walk a mile, walk two with them. Why? Because God's transformed your life and your heart. He was a preacher. He's also a priest. What does that mean? You know what that means? That means Jesus is the perfect high priest and intercessor. You know what? We are all considered intercessors in the sense that we can pray for each other. We're chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. We're part of God's spiritual temple as stones, living stones that make it up. But at the same time, we need to understand that our role in each other's lives is underneath the great intercessor who brings us to God. Jesus is also the king. Him being the king, by the way, does not in any way undercut the design for eldership. You might say, you know, yeah, I I just want to focus on Jesus, not the leaders in the church. Well, you know what? You got to understand that following Jesus's design in the church is following Jesus. But Jesus is still the king and he's the one who's perfect, working through imperfect people like you and me. You see? It goes together. He is the king and he is the ruler of all things. Number two, Jesus is the only perfect follower and perfect leader. Say perfect follower, how do I get that? Well, Jesus followed the father. And I was just thinking about it. When you think about Jesus as a a leader, his leadership was following. He followed the father perfectly. And this can kind of get you a little bit maybe outside of the normal way of thinking of Jesus. But Jesus is the perfect God man. But because he's the perfect God-man, he was the perfect man here on earth, sinless, but fully energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And submissive to the Father all the while. Just an amazing way to think about Jesus. And because he lived that way, we have a model to follow. Being submissive, being spirit-filled, and by God's grace, trying to be perfected in Christ, though we'll never be perfected until we reach heaven. He modeled how to lead. Jesus was both tough and tender as a leader. He said the hard thing and he was also gracious to all around him. Thirdly, Jesus clarifies that leadership is self-sacrifice. Jesus, he was, he is, and he is to come. He's glorious He is the Christophany of Isaiah 6 where the angels are are basking in his presence, declaring that he is holy. But when Jesus came here, who did he promote? The Father. His leadership was not about him. His leadership was about God. It's how all leaders should be. It's how we should be in our homes. It's how we should be in our workplace. It's how we should be in the church. It's pointing people to God. That's what Jesus did, giving glory to the Father. And his concern was to die for his 
Father's glory to redeem you and me. Number four, Jesus' headship affirms, not contradicts, the Bible's design of church leadership. He is the head, and Colossians and Ephesians pictures Jesus as the head, giving the lifeblood to the church, the organic life and strength to the body of Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church. His concern is for the church. He is concerned for Anchorage Grace. Just thinking about Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Jesus is pictured as the Son of Man in the midst of his seven lampstands. Jesus is in our midst. And we dare not forget that Jesus is the head. He is the designer of our local church. And he is the one for whom we should look. So let's look to him as we serve in this local body. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for your truth. And I pray that we would be those who obey Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus. Lord, thank you for his leadership, for his self-sacrifice. We want to give Jesus glory. And I pray, God, that you would penetrate our hearts. And I pray that if there is anyone here who does not yet know you, who has been tempted to hang on to their own preferences or their own burdens or idols that are weighting them down, who are hanging on to their own sins which cling so closely to us, who are not yet delivered, I pray that you would do that work of grace, that you would make this day the day of their salvation, where they, for the first time, through the eyes of faith, would see Jesus waiting for them at the end of their finish line the end of their race. God, open their hearts, and I pray that you would use us as a body to admonish and encourage and, and, and build up each other. And even for those who don't yet, yet, yet know you, that we could win people to Christ, even in our midst, because you're doing these things as our head, the head of our local church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and Join together for this final dismissal. Just thank you for your attention. I thank you that I could open the word of God to you this morning. And I just am so in awe of the truth that's before us, that Jesus is our head. If you indeed do not yet know Jesus, make today that day where you yield your life to him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself Take up his cross and follow him. And we want to help show you how to do that. What does it mean to live in self-denial for him and to find joy in Jesus? We want to pray with you. And so I'll be down front with others to pray with you if you want to receive Christ. And otherwise, go and be salt and light in a watching world around you. Live humbly under the lordship of Christ. Dismissed. Dismissed.